Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Welcome, On Script and Biblical World podcast listeners. I want to share the word about this new podcast that we're launching called The Biblical World, which explores the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. We've been working really hard on this over the last few months and are excited to bring this to you. Our team of co-hosts includes Chris McKinney, Mary Buck, Kyle Keimer, Oliver Hersey, Lynn Koek, and Mark Jansen. You'll get to know them in the next few episodes. We're going to cross-list a few episodes in our regular OnScript feed, but definitely encourage you to go subscribe to The Biblical World wherever you listen to podcasts and give it a rating so more people can hear about this. Also, if you'd like to donate to what we're doing with this new podcast, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate, and you can find out more about this podcast at onscript.study forward slash biblical world. Special thanks to Ed Hackey for producing this show, to Alan Files for all the hard work he's put in behind the scenes in getting the website up and running, and also to Keith Willis for picking out the theme music. Enjoy this first episode between Chris McKinney and Oliver Hersey on the cultural backgrounds of Hezekiah's cult reform. Thanks so much for listening. Hi there, fellow Bible scholars. It's good to have you with us today. You're listening to On Script, the new biblical world podcast. And today I get to be your host. My name is Oliver Hersey. I'm the president of Jerusalem University College. And I have the honor of being joined by one of my fellow co-hosts of this show, the one and only Dr. Chris McKinney, research fellow for Gesher Media and host of this podcast. I I am thrilled about this podcast, uh, Chris, as I think about some of the awesome hosts and guests that we have involved in it. We have a great team of people that you're going to be hearing from uh, who are just gifted teachers, researchers, scholars with high acumen and also great abilities to listen and ask questions. So I'm just thrilled for our listeners to have the opportunity to uh, get a lot out of this podcast. This podcast is going to be committed to providing opportunity to, to you, our listeners, to join us in seeing and experiencing and engaging um, how archaeology and texts can relate and inform each other and, and how there's opportunity for us to see and understand the biblical backgrounds, uh, which in turn help us understand scripture better. So Chris, are, are, are you as excited as I am about this podcast? I am. I am. I'm really stoked about the podcast. And what, I, what is so exciting about the podcast is really what I think is so exciting about this field of inquiry, this field of, of, uh, of academics, where you have so much that is happening all the time uh, that is new. I mean, this is actually one of the main reasons when I was uh, a young student, why, as I thought about being a biblical scholar and involved in, you know, in, in, in biblical studies, what field to follow and biblical archaeology just really um, was, 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 had such an appeal because not only are the things really interesting and exciting, it's, it's all new all the time. You get new stuff every year, every summer with, with excavations and uh, I would say that that um, excitement um, and really the, sen- the sensational uh, finds that are often uh, found in really surprising ways, uh, often in ways that we don't really think about, um, uh, is just making this the study of biblical archaeology really fun. And, and of course, 
the connection with the Bible and how we are to understand the biblical world. And so I'm really excited to see where this, where this podcast is going to take us. We've already had uh, a number of episodes recorded, and I can already say that many of them are, are quite fun with just some exceptional uh, scholars, not only among our hosts, but uh, also with our guests. So uh, I'm really excited, Oliver, to, uh, to continue this discussion. Um, and we're actually going to look at a similar uh, topic related to that, that in recent years has, um, has, has really emerged as a, an important element. And that is the cultic reforms of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Cultic reforms. And I would say that the first thing we have to do when we talk about the word cult is we need to be able to distinguish between the occult and cult. When archaeologists, historians, um, people who, who are interested in the history of religion, when they talk about cult, they don't mean uh, necessarily a sect or a small offshoot of, uh, of, of a particular form of religion, Christianity or Judaism and so on. What they mean is religious. And so in, uh, in academic ease, uh, cult means religious. And so when I say cultic activity, what I'm talking about is religious activity that Hezekiah, king of Judah, reformed in the late 8th century B.C., now, um, Hezekiah himself was king of Judah in something, uh, he became king in something like 727, 728 BC, and he lasted on the throne up into the mid-680s BC. Now, we actually have an enormous amount of information about Hezekiah, king of Judah, from the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. Uh, we have his, um, his, his reign and things happening in his reign in, mentioned in the books of Kings, in the books of, uh, of Second Chronicles. We have it also in I Isaiah. Um, and not only do we have these sources, which uh, really deal ex quite extensively with his reign, uh, you know, some kings end up getting a, just a few lines in the book of Kings. Hezekiah gets three whole chapters. Uh, he gets a lot. It's not good when you only get a couple lines. It's not good. Although sometimes those guys uh, are are really important. Like for instance, Jeroboam the second. He gets like three lines, and apparently he was the strongest northern king ever to have reigned. Um, which might tell you a little bit about who wrote the Book of Kings. It's you know, and what they thought about our friend Jeroboam the <laughs> second. That's right. That's right. Um, so in, in general, the Book of Kings is is, is really fun and. Um, and, and Hezekiah is not a side character to the book of Kings because not only the num number of chapters, but because of the theology and the, the scope of discussion really puts Hezekiah on par with two other main figures in the book of Kings. And that would be Solomon who dominates the, the first half of, of the book of First Kings, gets 11 whole chapters devoted to him. And I would say also to some extent Josiah, who is uh, a, a generation or two after uh, Hezekiah, where he gets another uh, three chapters or so. And these are going to be the three main figures of the book. Um, and what Hezekiah experiences is a major, um, uh, a major really dangerous situation that threatens the very existence of, uh, of, of Judah in the late 8th century. Now, before we get into that too much, let's actually just read 
what the text says. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, uh, although it would be worthwhile to, to go back and read 2 Kings chapter 18, but just to set the stage a little bit. Yeah, let's do that. I like it. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. Now that verse 4 is what we're going to focus our attention on. But let's read just a few more verses to get the, um, the background from the Bible, but also the background from um, the Assyrian sources, which are going to play a major role here. He trusted in Yahweh, this is verse 5, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to Yahweh. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses. And Yahweh was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria, which we're going to learn later is none other than Sennacherib, and would not... It's not good. Well, That's not good. Not, no, no, it's, it's, he's, a, he's a pretty, pretty powerful dude. Uh, and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. Now, um, about the context, uh, we, we can't spend a ton of time here, but about the context, uh, the, the context is that in the second half, really the, the last third of the 8th century BC, something like if you were to divide it up into three sets of 33 years, um, and it fits nice because Tiglath-Pileser III, or as I like to call him, TP3, um, he invaded in the area of Israel and the Philistine coast in Damascus in about 733 BC. Um, and he is going to invade uh, and, and destroy Damascus. He's going to, to uh, conquer whole parts of, of Israel, including uh, Transjordan and in the area of Galilee, and even probably go up against uh, and, and destroy the site of Gezer in 733 BC. And essentially, he's going to reduce the northern kingdom of Israel to more or less a rump state, a state that is uh, almost devoid of its main, um, main pieces that are significant for it to thrive, the area of Transjordan, the area of Galilee, many of those exp uh, that, were, that were sent off to Assyria. And then uh, it's going to cause its king, whose, whose name is, is Hoshea, to pay a heavy tribute. Now, this is a, a, an important point in this overall discussion because the Assyrians essentially had uh, two main areas, uh, two main punishments for not paying tribute to the Assyrian king. One is that they defeated you to the point where you called uncle uh, uh, and you said, you know, enough is enough, I'm going to give you my tribute. Uh, or if you were not all that significant, or if you rebelled multiple times, they would often uh, exile you and put a governor on the throne or uh, on the uh, ruling over the former nation that you formerly had. And so in the case of Israel in 733, um, they pay their tribute. And for the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, they're going to survive as this uh, rump state, the smaller state who continued to pay their tribute 
year by year until about the year 725 BC. By this point, uh, Tiglath-Pileser III had, had died and his son, Shalmaneser V, uh, had, had ascended to the throne of Assyria. And uh, with the rebellion uh, with Israel and them stopped paying their taxes or their tribute, uh, Shalmaneser V came to Samaria. And for the, over the course of three years, we're told in the previous chapter in 2 Kings chapter 17, Samaria is under siege. Eventually it will fall. Its king will be sent into exile. And if you can read the whole chapter, 2 uh, Kings chapter 17, to show the destruction of the northern kingdom. And this is how the northern kingdom essentially is, is wiped out. It's destroyed. And so in the previous chapter, we have a long discussion of why that is. Uh, It doesn't go into political dynamics. It doesn't talk about uh, what was happening in terms of uh, the Phoenicians and the Arameans and so on. But what it tells us is that the reason why Israel is destroyed is because they had for many generations um, with, from Jeroboam the first, from 931 BC on down to 722, they had the high places of Dan and Bethel and many other high places that were scattered throughout the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's because of this that God allowed the destruction of their kingdom. A couple years later, uh, the successor to the throne and the very famous and powerful uh, king, Sargon II, would actually have to come back to Samaria probably in 721 or 720. We actually have depictions of this from his famous palace of Dor Shurukin, where you can actually see Samarians uh, being attacked and killed by, uh, by Sargon II. Sargon II is active in the area, and it's at this time where, where Judah, by this point under the, under the reign of Hezekiah, uh, is going to pay its tribute. Uh, we have f- famous inscriptions, many of them debated, but it seems like over the course of this period that Hezekiah, as well as some other states, continued to pay their tribute to the Assyrians. Um, and it, 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 as, we, as we move forward, and Sargon II is going to die tragically, at least from the Assyrian perspective, on the battlefield uh, in 705. And talk about that for a minute. Why is it tragically from an Assyrian perspective? You can't just leave us hanging on that. Okay, so so there's there's a there's a very important part of this whole uh, of this whole discussion. The Assyrians, when they went on campaigns in the West, um, they do it for their own glory, for their own might, for their own power, their own prestige. And when they when they do it, they're actually re, they're actually building and furthering uh, the world of the Assyrian. Uh, of the Assyrian core, which is in uh, northern Mesopotamia, Ashur, Nineveh, Kala, and so on. And by continuing to go westward, they're bringing more and more of those outlying territories into their orbit and making them pacified before them. And so their, their chief god, Ashur, which is also the name of the city, which is also the name of the empire, uh, is a god of war. And the king, whoever that king is, is bound by uh, duty, tradition, and religion to continue to campaign. Um, This would include campaigns to Babylon, campaigns to the north, campaigns to the east, and in particular for us, for for interest for us, campaigns to the west. Um, And so by dying in battle, it really left uh, things in, in, in a disarray. And of course, from the Assyrians' perspective, to lose this great king, uh, Sargon II, who himself was trying to be like Sargon the Great, even naming himself after him, would have really uh, uh, set things back, to, to put it mildly. And so his, his son, Sennacherib, uh, would become king in the year 705 and had to deal with a few things 
before turning his attention towards the West. Now, in those years, 705, 704 BC, when Sennacherib uh, ascended to the throne, there, uh, the, the, the small states, um, uh, in fact, at, at JUC, when I was a student, uh, one of my favorite expressions that I learned there was to refer to the empires as the cats and the nation states as the mice. And so as, as the saying goes, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And one of the mightiest uh, mice uh, of the kingdom of Judah was Hezekiah. And he began to foment rebellion um, in the area of, uh, of, of southern Israel, bringing together as many as he could, and even going into league with um, some Philistine states to stop paying tribute to the Assyrian, uh, the Assyrian king. That's a bold move. That is a bold move. It, it was a bold move, very much so. And we can say with absolute certainty um, that at least in, it, it, it's not like it hadn't been tried before. It had been tried, um, we can look at the Assyrian record for, by this point, hundreds of years. And very few times was it actually successful, or at least uh, definitely not in the, in the 8th century. But, but this also tells us the fact that there's such a strong Assyrian military presence and they have, they're such a well-known threat. It tells you just how intense things like tribute were to be placed under. Um, and we could also add in the elements that the Assyrian kings considered themselves to be the rulers of the universe, to be the rulers of the world. Um, and we even see this in the inscription, the famous inscription from Nineveh, which depicts uh, the siege of Lachish, something also referenced in this chapter in 2 Kings 18. Uh, uh, prisoners, Judahite prisoners of Lachish are brought before Sennacherib, and it says above his name, Sennacherib, king of the universe. And so what we have in Isaiah 37 and 38 and 2 Kings 18 and 19, the two earliest versions of this story, is really a standoff ultimately between the two kings of the universe. Uh, one is Sennacherib and the other is not Hezekiah, but is Yahweh. In fact, that's what we, what we find in the, in the next chapter when essentially Hezekiah has nothing left. He's lying, weeping inside of the, the house of Yahweh, uh, pouring out his heart because he knows that Jerusalem is just upon the cusp of being wiped out, just like Samaria had. And the line of David, you know, the line of David, which starts all the way back in 2 Samuel 7 with the Davidic covenant and the, the line of these royal kings is going to be snuffed out. Um, and it's, so it's, it's not Hezekiah is so great that he's able to challenge Sennacherib. That's not what the Bible says. Now he does survive and that's kind of a whole other story, but it's, it's really setting the stage for this massive, uh, massive campaign in this event, 701 BC, which even until today, we consider to be one of the bedrock um, historical dates of Old Testament history, as well as one of these key core events in, in biblical history. Um, now, that all sets the stage because what we want to do is not talk about Sennacherib. Um, he does come and he does destroy 46 cities, which is apparently not an exaggeration. Dozens of sites have been found with, ex with, with excavated destruction layers, including places like Lachish, uh, Libna, and so on. Um, but instead, what we want to do is think about this one verse, and I'll read it again, where it says, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. We want to think about those 
maybe a decade before, maybe just a few years before the campaign in 701. Is there any archaeological evidence that seems to support the idea that there was a kind of cultic reform, a religious reform that Hezekiah did in the kingdom of, of Judah. We know, where the destru- we know where it's going. We know destruction is on the horizon. Uh, and we know ultimately in the story that Sennacherib is successful from his perspective and that he gets Hezekiah to pay his tribute. He even has to strip off the bronze pillars, Yahin and Boaz, uh, of Solomon's temple and, and, and pay tribute. Uh, but he doesn't do so without punishment, according to kings. Many of his soldiers die um, through an, through a, when the destroyer goes through the camp, much like what we have in uh, the Egyptian exodus. Uh, we know that all that's happening on the horizon, but let's just focus on this question of cult reform. Uh, any comments? I, 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 yeah, you, no, it's been good. To... You've, so you've set the stage for us in terms of what's happening with 2 Kings 18. And now we're going to look at what Hezekiah does. And I love, you said it earlier, and I, it struck me that this section of Scripture comes on the heels of the, uh, the quite blatant attack and assessment, not attack, but assessment of the northern kingdom's inability to remain faithful to Yahweh. And it's coming on the heels of what is said in 17, in chapter 17. So take it away. I I think we want to look now at where this reform is taking place and what this reform is entailing and and give us some insight about it. Yeah, I I think that to to do that, um, it's really important to look back at the previous chapter, um, 2 Kings 17, to see what covenant infidelity looked like. Uh, and that is that you have in, in the Northern Kingdom, syncretism, that is the worship of Yahweh and other deities. But if we focus specifically on the worship of Yahweh, um, worshiping Yahweh in a way that he has not allowed you to worship. Um, and speci- we, could, we could basically say worshiping Yahweh as if he were like Baal. That is, worshiping him in various places, worshiping him in, sp- in specific ways that were not allowed. Um, and in particular, uh, in light of um, the, c- the centralization, if you want to say, or the establishment, which is perhaps a better term, in Jerusalem as the, the main house and the only house of Yahweh, by Solomon, we have the establishment, as I said, of the, uh, of the high places at Dan and Bethel. But as, I, as we also pointed, there are many of these other places scattered through all throughout the northern kingdom. And towards the end of, of 2 Kings chapter 17, there's a really interesting line where it talks about how once the uh, people of Israel were taken out um, of the northern kingdom and sent into exile, that Yahweh actually sent lions and other wild beasts to go and devour people. And they actually had to, uh, the Assyrians did, just to maintain order, had to send back an old priest of Bethel just to get things back to the way they were, which, remember, the way things were, ultimately, according to the Deuteronomistic historian, the writer of the Book of Kings, meant exile, but just to get things back to where you could survive without getting eaten by a lion uh, was that you um, had to bring this priest back who at least knew some knowledge of, of Yahweh. Put another way, I always like to say, that um, the book of Kings presents 40 different kings, 20 in Israel, 20 in in Judah. And every single king of the north gets the same grade, an F. 
You know, they followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. That's, that that's Solomon's old foreman that takes off and takes a whole contingent of Israel north, and he sets up these two golden calves at Dan and Bethel. And it's not good when you get compared to that guy. <laughs> no, it's, but, but every single one does. And, and I and, say, and many of them are worse. Yeah, and, and exactly. I say that, that with Ahab and, um, and in, in the case of Ahaziah, they get an F minus. You know, that they did all things worse than the previous kings. Um, not good. And, and, and amazingly, I mean, we haven't found the one at Bethel, although there's various theories. Uh, but the one at, at Dan has been identified, and you can visit it until today, the, the sacrificial altar, uh, as well as the place where the, the golden calf was likely set up, and even an inscription, a later inscription, which says, uh, to the God who lives at Dan. Uh, this is you know, from the Hellenistic period. So we know a lot about what was happening in the Northern Kingdom, and that can be compared, at least we know a lot about from, from the text, that can be compared to what was happening in the South. And even though the South has the temple of Yahweh. Um, and if you go back and you read uh, from 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings uh, 18, where we are now, you will find various kings who did good and various kings who did bad, all with the caveat, even with the good ones, that, uh, yeah, they followed in the steps of David, who's the, the grade for the, northern, uh, for the southern kingdom, except the high places remained, the Bamot. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be a place that was high, but a place that you had the worship of either other deities or Yahweh in a wrong form. And it's precisely this that has, this is the, the object that Hezekiah seems to reform, at least according to 2 Kings chapter 18. And so with that, we should say one other thing about the archaeology, because that's where we're going to turn now, is when we talk about the archaeology of the kingdom of Judah, in the Iron Age. And the Iron Age is from, a, Iron Age II is from about 1000 BC to about 586 BC. The period that is most well represented is the 8th century, the time period that we're talking about, and the 7th century BC. And actually, even more so, the 8th century is very well established because it seems that in this period, Judah reached its apex in civilization. This is reflected in the Bible in such texts as Micah, um, as well as Isaiah. Uh, of course, Chronicles talks about how Uzziah expanded westward against the Philistines. And this is well established now archaeologically that there are many, many sites in the hill country of Judah and the Shephelah and even the coastal plain that were under the control of the Davidic crown, the house of Judah, uh, the house of David. Um, and so when Hezekiah was king, we talked about, you know, that he was maybe feeling a little too big for his britches to reach out and think he could uh, withstand the Assyrian assault. Uh, but to, um, his, to his benefit, you know, if, if, you know as, a, as, as a strategist, it was the, the best moment in time uh, in terms of their, their military strength and their military, uh, and their military power. And so at this peak, at this peak, um, of, of uh, let's say, material culture, uh, the best fortifications, uh, the most riding uh, till that point in time, um, the, even the, our only monumental inscription or one of our only monumental inscriptions in Jerusalem comes from Hezekiah's tunnel, which is dug at this time, you know, the Siloam inscription. Um, the fortifications, of course, of the broad wall, um, at the, the, the massive fortifications at Lachish and really all throughout the, the kingdom. Um, it's, it's during this period where there have been several 
uh, examples of, of formerly cultic sites that were then reformed, at least according to the interpreters. Um, the first of these that was, uh, that was uncovered, uh, actually two of these really went hand in hand, both of them uncovered by Yohanan Aharoni. Uh, we always get to give a shout out to Yohanan Aharoni as the, uh, as the grandfather or great-grandfather, depending on you want to talk about it, of, uh, of historical geography. Um, he's, uh, as you know, uh, a, a real hero, you know, the, the, the teacher of Anson Rainey and the kind of the, who was the, 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 one of the main figures of JUC for, for many years. For many, many, many. What a, what a, what a fantastic set of scholars right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy too. His book, um, you know, the, 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 you know, his, his book that was published in 1979, uh, it's still on my desk and I still refer to it on a very regular basis. And even though it's, you know, almost 40, it's a classic, it's a classic text. And, uh, but anyway, his excavations at these places, um, revealed two places that had a cultic area. One of these, and I'll focus on Beersheba first, uh, was very interesting because as they exposed Beersheba on a, on a very vast scale, uh, something like half of the site was excavated, uh, and all of what you see when you visit the site today dates to this 8th century. That is, when you visit the site of Beersheba, you're actually walking in the city that was destroyed by uh, Sennacherib. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what's, I mean, it's amazing. You, you're walking through that. But in that city, as you go through the gate, and as you see the storehouses, as you see the forum houses lined up against the casemate wall, um, one of the walls just inside that plaza as you come into the site um, included a, a set of very nice cut stone that had three horns. Now, it didn't, they don't have, they didn't ever find the fourth, but they found three horns, uh, which when they assembled it, uh, seemed to be a very large sacrificial altar. Um, and one of the interesting things, uh, for, I'll mention it unless I forget it, is that along the side, it was really interesting that there was an etching, which appears to be a kind of snake, uh, which we don't know if we can say this with certainty, but it is kind of interesting to think about the Nehushtan, the, the, the bronze serpent. Referenced in that passage. It's referenced in that passage, which of course goes back to the book of Numbers, where we have Moses in the area of uh, Punon, or today Phanon, uh, which is in a north, um, the northern Arava, just across the border of Israel with, with Jordan, where there's lots of copper production, which is where that event happened much earlier. And this passage is saying that, yeah, Moses did this and it was good, but the people went after and, and worshipped this, uh, this symbol, uh, this Nehushtan, rather than worshipping in the correct place. And so it's interesting that perhaps the snake that is on the uh, one of the stones of the Beersheba altar might be uh, connected with this in some way. Now, it's, it's hard to say with absolute certainty, but it's, 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 it's an interesting point nevertheless. Now, it seems then that the, in terms of the, um, the sequence, the site that you visit at Beersheba or I should really, well, I'll come back to this in a minute. Um, the, the site that you visit dates to the, to the reign of, of, of Hezekiah and also the destruction by Sennacherib. But in the, the decades before or so, that altar was apparently disassembled and rebuilt into the wall. Now, if you have an altar, um, it, an altar, especially a sacrificial altar, isn't just by itself. It has a temple, and it has 
uh, things like incense altars, focal points of worship, that we'd be connected with this. Um, and, and, and as it turns out, we also have the prophet Amos uh, talking about the way of Beersheba. And he talks about it in relation to Bethel and Gilgal, other known cultic sites in the northern kingdom. And so it seems that Beersheba was in the 8th century, and perhaps earlier than this, a cultic site that was, um, that was in use. And in, 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 let's say, for lack of better, a better date, let's say like 710 or so, it was reformed by Hezekiah uh, or by his officials who tore down this altar and rebuilt it into the wall and using it in what we call secondary use. Um, and if you want to see that today, uh, you can see a replica at the site, but the, the original is in the Israel Museum. And uh, if you listen to this podcast, you'll know to look close for the snake etching. It'll make you feel good. And you think, oh, that's 2 Kings 18.4. I knew that. Uh, yeah. Um, now, one, one other thing. Uh, I actually don't think that uh, Tel Sheva is exactly Beersheba. Um, the, without getting too far in the weeds here, it's interesting that in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter um, 15, but also in Joshua uh, chapter uh, 19, we read about two sites, Beersheba and Sheba, uh, the same name, you know, Oath or Seven, you know, that's, if you go back to the Genesis, uh, the, the Genesis explanation for how we get the name, um, but the Arabic name of, of what we call today Beersheba or Tel Beersheba or Tel Sheba is Tel Seba, which is exactly the, the name for Sheba, that is the mound of Sheba, and that's what I would identify it with, and Ancient Beersheba, which is the site most often mentioned in the south, in my opinion, is most likely where we have uh, modern Beersheba. And in Arabic, the name is called Bir Es Seba, which is exactly the, the same name. And despite the fact that Aharoni and other archaeologists didn't expose a massive, nice tell for us to walk around in, uh, in recent years, um, uh, particularly with the uh, archaeologists of the Israel Antiquities Authority, they've shown that there is a number of important Iron Age remains in and around a well. Uh, in fact, the traditional well of Abraham, which sits right along the, the Nahal Beersheba in southeastern parts of modern Beersheba. Not too far from Ikea, actually. Uh, <laughs> you can get your cabinets and your ferns and your well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's, it was, you know, it's for commerce. And so it's keeping its modern, uh, its modern example. So, so I want to go back to the reform. You, we were talking about these reforms and you had said there is archaeological evidence, or perhaps we can interpret it this way. And you gave us this, you know, you, you, you walked us through this, this Nehushtan the, the, the snake, the Nehushtan yeah. uh, example. Is there anything else at Beersheba or Tel Sheva or, you know, I know there's some other sites like Arad or Moza or Lachish. Maybe you want yeah. to talk a little bit about some of the ways we can see data right. here. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's a, a very important point. And we should also say that this whole thing was heavily debated at the time. I mean, the, the arguments in archaeology of today, which you can say names like Ami Mazar, uh, Yossi Garfinkel, and Israel Finkelstein, and others from Tel Aviv. Uh, those are old war, uh, <laughs> old, old battles that go back to uh, Yigal Yadin and Aharoni. And this is precisely the thing that they were talking about. And so 
if this was a one-off thing in Telsheva, you might say, well, you know, maybe they just decided to build another altar and we just haven't found it yet. But as this was happening, we also had excavations uh, by Aharoni right around this time frame occurring at Telarad, which is just across the Beersheba Basin, uh, the, the Negev of the Bible. And this was a very different site. Um, it is a, a Judahite fortress, which was in use from something like um, the late 11th century, all the way through the destruction of the kingdom of Judah in 586 BC. It's got um, such a rich history. It's a very rich history, but very a very much a functional military site. Whereas Beersheba is a kind of a provincial center, uh, or, or, or Tel Sheba, you know, I, I, even I say that it's Beersheba. Uh, um, uh, it's a provincial, it, it's for trade, whereas this one, it's, it's mostly a fortress. Um, but within the fortress... They constructed, uh, and there's a bit of a debate as to when it was built, um, they constructed a small shrine. Um, so at Beersheba, we don't have the shrine, but we have the sacrificial altar, which is very close to the description of other four-horned altars in the Bible. At Arad, we have the entire shrine itself, which comprises something like uh, a fifth or a quarter of the entire uh, footprint of this fortress. Um, it includes a courtyard with a sacrificial altar. It includes an inner kind of sanctuary. When we, if we were using the biblical terminology for the, for the temple of Solomon, we might call it the holy place and the holy of holies. Because at the back, there's a niche uh, with an offering table, two incense altars, and either one or perhaps two standing stones. In Hebrew, uh, masevot. Now, without getting into, uh, or without getting into yet, the, the possibilities of, you know, why there may be uh, two incense altars and perhaps two standing stones, let's talk a little bit about the stratigraphy. And it's important to remember that the, 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 the sequence of, of, of this is, is held not by, uh, you know, really conservative scholars. This is what Zev Herzog, one of the excavators uh, of the site, uh, when Aharonia tragically died in his mid-50s, he took over it. This is what he would also hold, that essentially the, the site, the temple was either built in the 9th or perhaps in the early 8th century, and that before the attack of Sennacherib, the altar and the Holy of Holies were retrofitted and it no longer was used as a religious site, which would fit, um, again, with what we read in 2 Kings 18.4, um, that we have a high place that was in use during the reign of Hezekiah and over the course of his reign went out of use before a destruction. And this is important. That's interesting. The the right, very interesting, very interesting. Um, and remember, archaeologists love destructions because destructions seal things. They seal things. That and they're fun. They are fun. They smell like destruction and there's often very nice goodies inside. Well, and, you, and you're right. I mean, it preserves... It preserves a moment in time, which yeah. allows us such brilliant access and insight into what life was like at that moment in time. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And it's and, and digging in destruction, even though you maybe should feel bad for them, it, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's just a, a real rush to uh, to be able to uncover those things for the first time. So um, you so so you're saying that they that there's evidence of. Help our, help our audience see this a little bit. There's evidence of this destruction layer, but prior to the destruction layer, we know that the cultic, um, the cultic paraphernalia had gone out of use. 
Yes. Yeah. So they, they when they excavated it, and we should remember that there is a lot of debate about this, and a lot has changed in terms of the pottery. Like, if you've ever heard of the high versus low chronology, the traditionalists versus the maximalists, if you have exhibit A, B, C, a rod um, and its pottery is in those that list of exhibits because it is a well-excavated site. It was done by people who were trying to understand the Bible and the biblical connection, and a rod is mentioned in the Shishak uh, relief. Um, so it has to have presumably 10th century remains because Shishak came in 925 BC. And so there's uh, a certain very important absolute kind of dates that relate to the relative dates of the pottery that then can be connected with other places like Brasheva and Lachish and so on. Without going too far into the weeds there, it's it's a very important site and has therefore had a lot of discussion, but there's more of a less a consensus-ish, if you will, on the site that the site the cultic building was in use probably as early as the ninth century, perhaps, but definitely in the eighth century. And then based upon what they found that it was covered up a bit, the, the cultic paraphernalia, cultic remains, and then the site continued to be used, but in the eighth, but in 701 BC, Sennacherib came and destroyed it and, and left and left his destruction debris. And then after that, the site was rebuilt on top of that destruction debris, which sealed it. So do we see this similar, uh, do we see this elsewhere? I mean, you've, you've given us Tel Sheva, you've given us Arad. I mean, is this, is, is there other 8th century examples like this that perhaps would fit in this contemporaneous time? Yeah, for, for a long time, Arad and Beersheba were by themselves. Off in the Negev, and for many people who went on JUC trips and field trips, you know, you did these in one day, so you really got the sense. Um, and so I would say for, for, for decades even, this idea was out there and it was debated, is it Josiah, is it Hezekiah that did this? And then... Um, Going back even now in the last few years, there have been two discoveries that have really um, seemed to confirm this, this idea of, of occultic reform. The first one of those is at a place called Tel Moza, which is a fantastic site, and anyone who's been to Jerusalem has actually been to the site without knowing it. Um, because when you go to Jerusalem from, from the Ben-Gurion airport, you actually drive right over the top of it. Um, it is just below um, the, the city or the, the, the neighborhood of Mevaseret Sion, uh, just outside Jerusalem, something like seven miles to the west of Jerusalem. It's a massive uh, or a very important tell um, that goes back to the Middle Bronze, Late Bronze, Iron Age, and so on. Recently, they uncovered a, a very large uh, Neolithic site next to it, which um, is, is really, um, really going to be a very important thing to, for archaeologists studying these earlier periods. But the, the whole point of the excavation was they wanted to straighten what they called the death curve, um, which was the road descending from Mevaseret Sion and then climbing up to Jerusalem. They wanted because it had this horrible curve right at the end that always caused these accidents. <laughs> the death curve. Um, I don't even the know. Death, which, which is a great name, great nickname for maybe a uh, syncristic uh, high place that Hezekiah uh, destroys. I'm going to the death curve, honey. I'm going to the death curve. Um, and so at when the excavations took place, um, going back, and this is this is 20 years ago, they found this nice tell. They found this nice building 
um, and even found a, um, uh, a number of prestige items in it. But they essentially left it because they decided we're not going to do anything with the highway. Now, about 10 years ago, they re-investigated it under the direction of Shua Kisilevitz, who is now going back to the site after the highway has been completed. And they found uh, an altar with a favisa, which is a ritual burying of, of cultic objects, which included, um, which included several figurines, a horse and rider figurine, uh, a, a person figurine, and, and, other, uh, and other bones. And then near that, they found a porch that led into a holy place with, with benches on it. And on the side, they found auxiliary buildings. Now, if that's not connecting with you, that is precisely the description of what you read about the temple of Yahweh, the house of Yahweh of Solomon in 1 Kings 6 and 1 Kings 7, as has been confirmed by other temples, particularly the temple at Aindara in, in Syria and Tel Ta'anat uh, in, in southern Turkey, southeastern Turkey. Um, so this was, this was really a, kind of a well-established profile of what a, um, an Iron Age temple would look like. And Shua Kisilevich's excavations indicated that the building itself was established in either the late 10th or the early 9th century. Um, and, uh, and at least according to the more recent excavations, they've actually found an earlier temple, which might date to an even earlier part of the 10th century, which is really interesting. This is ongoing as, as we speak. They're investigating it this summer. Um, but for our purposes, the significant thing was that just like what we saw at Arad, and just like what we saw at Beersheba, in the last decades of the 8th century, it seems that the site went out of use. It was no longer used as a religious compound, a cultic compound, but instead it was used as just a, a regular building. The altar was uh, essentially buried, of course, the objects were buried. And so the interpretation was that this is another example of Hezekiah's reform. Now, without going, uh, it seems like there's always bonus material for these, um, without going too much, I, I have the theory um, and uh, that, that this particular temple is connected with a building mentioned in the Bible. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, when the Ark of the Covenant is moved from Kiriat-Yerim to Jerusalem, uh, there's, a, there's a hiccup. Um, the hiccup is that they put it on a cart uh, being pulled by oxen, and a guy named Utsa um, is who's supposed to know what to do as a, as a, as a, as a priest and, and not supposed to treat it, the ark like that as if it were agricultural uh, equipment because it's taken over a threshing floor. And often on a threshing floor, oxen use a threshing sledge to thresh grain. And so here we have the, the seat of the Lord of the universe being treated as if it were a tractor. Um, and he puts out his hand and Yahweh strikes him dead. And they call the place at this threshing floor, Peretz Utsa, um, where we have the breaking out uh, against Utsa. And David's afraid. So he takes the ark and he places it in the house, which often can be a term for temple of Obedidom the Gittite. Now we don't know, it doesn't say where this is. It doesn't say it's in Jerusalem. We know it has to be between Kiryat Yerim and Jerusalem where the ark is eventually going to end up in the city of David. And so my suggestion with this discovery is because of its location to, um, but between Kiryat Yerim, it's just a couple miles uh, to the east, that it's a, a nice candidate for the house of Obedidom the Gittite. Um, where in, in years afterwards, they would remember the connection with the Ark, 
which also kind of reminds us of what we read in Second um, Kings eighteen four, where they worship after the Nehushtan. They worship something that was actually good in their past, but they go astray and continue to prioritize it. Now that's neither here nor there for the main point, uh, but it's a fun topic to kind of think about. That's really interesting to think about, uh, Chris. I, I like I like that idea, and I I'm going to give it more thought. I think that's a that's a real interesting perspective, and I look forward to thinking more about it. Yeah, maybe we'll do another episode uh, on that. But we got one more. We, we, but logistically, it makes sense. It does. Uh, it does. And and uh, and others have made the suggestion um, independently. Um, but you know, sometime in print, this is supposed to be coming out at some point. Now, lastly, there's one more. And there's there's a couple other possibilities, but there's one more that's really fascinating. And to bring this full circle, because actually. Um, Yohanan Aharoni was trying to go back to Lachish to start his excavations before he turned south to go to Beersheba and Arad. To bring this full circle, we come back to Lachish. Lachish, which is, besides Jerusalem, the most well-known Iron Age Judahite site, and actually in some ways more well-known because of its uh, clear 8th century deposit, um, there's been numbers of excavations that have taken place there uh, going back to uh, even the beginning of the 20th century, um, with James Leslie Starkey, uh, Aharoni for a very brief period of time. And the main one is David Yushishkin, David Yushishkin in the, in the seventies. Um, this is particularly interesting for, uh, for people that have, uh, studied with Gabi Barkai because he was, um, the number one, um, archeologist below David Yushishkin. And anyone who's studied with Gabi Barkai, uh, has spent six or eight hours on, uh, <laughs> on Lakish telling you about every single stone there. Um, but one of the things Yushishkin did is he found, um, well, he, he excavated a four-chambered gate, the main gate that you see at Lakish when you go through it, that dates to the 8th century BC, probably founded already in the days of Uzziah, something like 760 BC, and it was the gate that w- that, that was destroyed in 701 BC. And he excavated one side of the gate. So if you're entering through the, through the gate, it's the one on the left, uh, through one side. And, and gates, um, they have chambers. They can be a six-chambered gate or a four-chambered gate or two-chambered gate. This was a six-chambered gate. And so they had excavated the chambers and the gate itself from the 8th century. Um, on, they'd only excavated the left side. And they left um, the, the right side for future archaeologists, uh, which we're really glad that they did. And along came um, the 21st century, and new, new archaeologists came back to Lachish, particularly uh, Yossi Garfinkel and Michael Hazel, uh, and I think the other scholar's name is Klingbell. They were looking for um, the, uh, what we call Lachish 5, thinking that they could find the earliest fortification of the city of Lachish, which could be 10th or 9th century. And they focused mostly on um, the, the northern side of the Tell, but the Antiquities Authority wanted, and, and the Parks Authority, wanted to develop the site better for guests. And so they said, well, you know, we have this nice gate, let's expose more of it. And so uh, two archaeologists, uh, Igor Kremerman and Asargonor, they were tasked with excavating the other half of the gate. And they exposed chamber after chamber after chamber. And of course, I said there's three. Once they got to the third and final of the chambers, as you enter into the city, they found several interesting things. 
One, they found that it was covered with the same destruction layer of Sennacherib, which is 701 BC. Beneath this destruction layer, inside of this final chamber, and again, for those for our audience, um, this is a small area. We're talking about something like three by four feet. It's a small space. Um, they found a an altar that had its horns sawn off, um, which if you're a Texas A&M uh, Aggie fan um, is very uh, apt because that's what Aggies do to Longhorns. Uh, but it, its horns were, were sawn off. And very interestingly, it also included a toilet. Um, a toilet that was deposited inside of this chamber. Uh, now, there's been some people who say it's not a toilet, but it's a toilet. Uh, we have other ones of these toilets. It's cut from rock. It's got a hole in the middle, uh, a little depression, which it leaves, uh, it, you know, it, it's pretty clear that's what it's for. But interestingly, this one was never used. Uh, there was no evidence. And you might ask, how do we know that? Well, they carried out residue analysis on this toilet and other toilets of similar types had previous residue analysis done on them and it was clear that they had been used. Um, and so this one seems to have been purposefully deposited in, the, in this chamber to, uh, to essentially uh, to, to, to remove the religious character of it, to, uh, to, to sacralize this, uh, to desacralize this area, um, which if, you, if, you're, if you're thinking about your biblical trivia, is rather interesting, not only because it can connect us with 2 Kings 18.4, but also because in the book of Kings, a few chapters before this chapter, we read about a pretty bloody king named Jehu, who after laying waste, of course, to Ahab's descendants um, at Jezreel and uh, uh, unspeakable things to Jezebel's, uh, to, to Jezebel, and so on, and seventy people with their heads in baskets at Jezreel. It's some bad stuff. But the, but really, the bloodiest part of that is in Samaria, because uh, uh, Jehu says, you know, Ahab and his and his sons, they, um, you know, they, they were worshiping Baal just a little. I'm going to worship Baal a lot. And so he brings anyone who wants to worship Baal in this house of Baal, which we must assume was a kind of large temple, perhaps as big or like the, the, the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem, hasn't been found yet in Samaria. And uh, as they do that, they lock the doors um, and they essentially kill everyone in the building. And then it says afterwards that they turn the house of Baal in Samaria into a toilet. Uh, much like what you have going on uh, in in this passage, it's in the uh, it's within a hundred years of this, around the same time frame, but a little bit a little bit more than a hundred years before this. But he gets the idea of what it might mean to destroy and try to remove this religious activity. And so, to to conclude, to summarize, we have four examples, and there's a few others that are possibilities, but four examples which seem to speak to a uh, a consistent pattern of uh, the, the, the removal cult reform of these sites. We have Tel Sheva with an altar, a sacrificial altar that was decommissioned. We have the entire shrine at Arad, which actually is perhaps even referenced in a, uh, an inscription from Arad, the, the house of Yahweh. 
that is um, right before Sennacherib's campaign. It's decommissioned. We have the um, the shrine, uh, well-built structure, much like the the, the house of, of Yahweh in Jerusalem, decommissioned right before Sennacherib came. Although at Moza, we don't have a destruction that we can point to that would be 701. Apparently, Moza wasn't destroyed then. And then the fourth one, uh, and perhaps the most fantastic of these, is the recent discovery of the um, of the the western or the eastern gate of Lachish and the gate from the eighth century that um, showed a an altar that had its horns sawn off and the depositing of a toilet. Uh, beneath, that is, earlier than the destruction of Sennacherib, all of which seems to support uh, 2 Kings chapter 18.4, which says that Hezekiah tore down the high places. When this is so great to have you so so helpfully articulate all of this and, and walk us through these sites and what we find there and how they can illuminate our understanding of the reform of Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18. And it's a great example, and this kind of is a great segue to uh, what you're going to be doing this summer for us at JUC. You're joining staff with us um, in, in a sense of teaching a course uh, that will be offered this summer in the Jerusalem University College Summer Institute that will be online. Your class that you're teaching is what... Um, archaeology can and cannot tell us about the Bible. Did I get the title right? Yes, they did. That, that, that's it. Yeah, it's a good title. It's a it's a mouthful, but it's a good title. And what you're what, what you've just done here, Chris, is given us such a great walkthrough of how archaeology can help inform some of the ways we read the texts in our Bible and shape the way we can understand them and deepen them even, and maybe even verify to a degree some of the things we encounter. So that course, there'll be six sessions offered beginning in mid-May uh, that we really, if, you, if you're interested in studying the Bible at a deeper level with Chris, uh, you could actually do that this summer through Jerusalem University College. Just go to juc.edu, um, or you can Google JUC, an online summer education. Chris is going to be one of teaching one of three of our classes. And um, I'm really excited, Chris, about the class that you'll be teaching. I think it's going to be um, a really insightful class. And I, I, can, I want to take it. I saw your syllabus. And I think the topics that you're covering, you know, the King's List and Joshua and um, exploring things from the Exodus all the way to the exile, I think are going to be really, really interesting to think about. So are you excited to teach this course? Uh I'm very excited to teach the course. Um, like like we, we said before, this is fun stuff to to think through and talk about. And uh, you know, in thinking about like the perspective on a lot of these things, um, it, it's if if we're wrong about one of those or two of those, it it it's really we don't lose anything. But this is really what archaeology can tell us. It can help flesh out what that text might be indicating what what was a high place what what did it in what did it mean to be have a high place in the ancient world um and, and so it's just really an exciting way to um i always people always want to say you know to prove the bible true it's not really proving the bible true as much as it is trying to illustrate and recover what the biblical text is actually saying and in some cases chris what we read in the Bible can also help inform or at least steer to a degree some of the ways we interpret what we are discovering. Because everything you've just described at these sites requires a level of interpretation, and you said that. And different scholars might 
veto the interpretation, and that's that's perfectly fine. In fact, we should sometimes veto interpretations because they're not good, and right. uh, and and that's where we have to be careful. Uh, but I think you've you've demonstrated um, how we can be careful and think through critically what we are discovering and unearthing in the excavation process uh, and and possibly what they mean. One of the key things I think you drew attention to is that these elements were found before that destruction layer. And we know that that destruction layer, as you put in the outset here of your presentation, comes to us from Sennacherib, who is after Hezekiah's reform. Right. One final thing about that is Sennacherib, I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of like a 1776 date for Americans. I mean, it's a, it's a date that not only do we have the Bible talking about, the, but he's, he has it in many different inscriptions. In fact, the Sennacherib prism, I think there's something like three main editions, uh, which specifically mention Hezekiah, specifically mention Jerusalem, 46 cities, and so on. Um, and so it's, it's really, if we know anything about the... Uh, kingdom of Judah, we know about the late 8th century. Um, we're not talking about things that we know less about, like, for instance, the area of the Israelite settlement and the conquest, the exodus. Um, this is something that we know a lot about, uh, and it has almost kind of that sense of, like, in the Second Temple period, where you can connect Josephus with the destruction layers in Jerusalem, where you have text and um, and archaeology aligning so closely with one another. And that's what I think, uh, to your point, really makes this interpretation all the more interesting because it's backed up against a really important archaeological and historical foundation. Yeah. No, it's, it's good, and, and I'm, I'm excited for people to sign up for your class, and, and I hope they do. If you've, if, you've come up, if you've stumbled across this podcast and it's still before mid-May of 2021, uh, jump on our website, juc.edu, and find our online summer institute. Register for Dr. McKinney's course. You will uh, you will not be disappointed. We also have other courses if you wanted to register for ones in addition to Dr. McKinney's. Uh, we have Dr. Wave Nunley teaching Jesus the Galilean. And then our, uh, our current president, Dr. Paul Wright, who will be um, retiring in July, and has been a staple to the JUC community uh, and, a, and a rock for many to rely upon. He will be teaching one of uh, one of the courses as well, and that's reading Psalms geographically. Uh, so I think that'll be uh, that'll be real interesting as well. So we hope you'll you'll check our website out. We hope you'll rate our podcast here on Script. Though, um, if you are finding our podcast on a platform, we hope you will give us a five, share it with a friend or a colleague. Uh, we really hope that you will uh, continue tuning in for more episodes to come. We are on script, the Biblical World Podcast, and I'm Oliver Hersey signing off. Thanks so much, Dr. Chris McKinney, for joining us. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.